What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of season three of the Hardcore Humanism podcast. Today, we are thrilled to welcome back to the podcast singer, songwriter, guitarist, and music PhD, Dr. Michael Bishop, otherwise known as the berserker blothar of the heavy metal band Guar. For those of you who are not familiar with the band, Guar has created an elaborate mythology around the group in which each band member is also a character, such as Michael's Blothar persona. And their live shows are more like theater productions with outrageous costumes and special effects. And their unique approach is working. Loudwire has rated Guar as one of the greatest heavy metal bands of all time. And Alternative Press has called Guar one of the top 10, quote, wildest live metal bands with unforgettable performances. Guar has a lot going on right now. They have a new album that just came out called The New Dark Ages. Kerrang! called the new album, quote, a bonkers concept album and mind-bending proof that Guar remains the sickest band in the universe. And recently, the premium streaming service Shudder announced that it has acquired the rights to global distribution of the documentary film about the band called This Is Guar, which will go live on Shudder July 21st. And Guar will be touring Europe and then coming back to the United States for some festival shows this summer and fall. So check out all things Guar at Guar.net. Now, in the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program, our goal is to utilize principles of humanistic psychology to empower you to find your purpose, work hard to achieve that purpose, and build a supportive community so that you can lead a fulfilling and authentic life. And on the Hardcore Humanism Podcast, we talk with artists such as Michael Bishop who have overcome obstacles as they pursue their authentic life so that we can learn from their experience as we embark on our purpose-driven journey. And one of the most challenging issues that we can face on this journey is how we understand and develop ourselves as individuals as compared to how we understand and develop ourselves as part of a community. We as individuals have our own personal identity with our unique sense of purpose, our hopes, our dreams, our values. And the communities that we identify with, whether family, friends, bands, religious organizations, or music scenes, develop more of a collective identity with their own sense of purpose and values. Now, in an ideal world, we find communities that are a perfect vehicle for developing our own individual identity. For example, this can happen when people join a band. People often have a personal identity as a musician, and part of their purpose in life is to develop their craft and perhaps do specific things such as making records, playing shows, and even earning a living as a musician. And if an individual musician finds like-minded musicians and they form a band in which all the members of the band want the exact same thing, the collective identity of being in a band can be a fantastic vehicle for pursuing our individual sense of purpose. The problem is that it's incredibly rare to find people whose identity and purpose match ours throughout the course of our life. Once we become a member of a group, we often have to balance our individual needs and sense of purpose with the needs of the other group members. And it can be incredibly difficult to figure out how much we should bend and sacrifice our needs and our purpose for the needs and goals of the collective. During our conversation, Michael and I talk about one of the main themes of the This Is Guar movie which is how the individual members of Guar grappled with devoting themselves to the community that they developed while also trying to maintain a sense of themselves as individuals. One of the particular issues that Michael discusses is an event in 1993 in which bandmate Peter Lee was shot and wounded in front of other members of the band. And he discusses the tension in the band between taking time to recognize the magnitude of the event and heal from this traumatic experience and the band's decision to continue playing shows soon after the incident. 
And that's such a tough thing because part of the power of Guar has been its commitment to touring shows and its fans. But at that point, Michael decided that he didn't feel as aligned with the core values of the band. He felt that the band as a community was not being attentive enough to the individual members of the band who may have needed time to process what had just happened. And so he decided to leave Guar. Then 20 years later, in 2014, when founding Guar member David Brockie died, Michael, after spending the prior 20 years playing in other bands, getting his PhD in teaching, decided to rejoin the band. Michael eventually became the lead singer, taking on the persona of the berserker Blothar. And one of the real take-homes I had from the conversation is the way Michael made the decision to leave and then the decision to rejoin the band. It was based on the same basic process, which is something he referred to as personal economics. He asked himself the basic question of whether he can love himself while loving the band at the same time. Or did he need to sacrifice who he was in order to be part of this community? And this is a really tough decision that many of us have to make in our lives. We often do sacrifice our own sense of self in order to be part of a greater community. We lose sight of the fact that the goal of community is often to help us pursue our purpose-driven life and help others do the same. But if we lose ourselves in the process, we lose a lot of the benefits of community. We lose our sense of purpose. We lose our sense of ourselves. So let's listen to what Dr. Bishop, the berserker Blothar of Guar, has to say. All right, Dr. Bishop, welcome back yes. to the podcast. Well, it's great to be back. So let's just get right into it. Uh, the movie was excellent, I thought. Really, really impressive. There's a lot of important themes that came up. But the one that stood out the most, which I also think fits in perfectly with your expertise, is the idea of collective versus individual identity. And oh. I think there are so many people who in part define themselves based on uh, being part of a group, whether it's a band or a scene or a family. And a lot of what came up in the movie was the tension about how does one give over to some degree their own individual identity to be a part of this wonderful collective. And then what happens to one's individual identity before, during, and after as that's all happening. And so if you're cool, let's just, let's just get right into that. Okay, sure. That sounds perfect. Well, one thing is that and, and it, the movie establishes a lot of things. You know, the, the, the more interesting story has always been, to me anyway, how Guar uh, functions as this unique thing. Uh, it, you know, and, and people focus on, well, it's so unique on stage. Yes, it is. But the organization that that puts it on stage has always been, to me, a more interesting story. And it's been the central theme of my life in a lot of ways is being a part of that 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 thing. Um, and and it is the uniqueness of the band definitely comes from this sense of collective responsibility for something. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like as an academic, you know, you're trained to look for things you know, what does this look like? Right. Like, you know, I mean, I remember trying to look for like what with straight edge, the concept of straight edge, it's like, well, what does it look like? I don't know. A youth based asceticism movement, like the goddamn boy scouts. I, you know, it's like, what does it look like? Well, Guar, 
when you look at it, it's like, it doesn't look like anything else. Like, uh, and when I left the band, I remember thinking, well, I'll just fall in with another group of artists and musicians who cooperate to make this big rock and roll stage. Show. There's not such a thing in the world. Um, so, uh, but, but at the heart of that, like the thing that I think does make it unique is this, uh, almost like a, you know, <laughs> you know, the ego really has to, it, it's always there. Everybody's always, uh, there's always tension. Uh, but in the end, everybody is serving this one central goal. Uh, and everybody agrees that the most important thing is pushing this thing forward. Um, and we do that by uh, all sharing uh, a sense of identity, right? Uh, that that you know we're a part of this thing that needs to move forward, um, and so we need to at least to some degree be prepared to sacrifice uh, the uh, you know self in, in in some ways, and and that is the one thing that makes it uh, really really unique, and I think difficult to replace, right? Like like people fans love to say. War can last a million years or whatever, like, you know, because you just get these different people to put the suits on. It's like, that's not true. I mean, it, it's going to last as long as the people who are involved in it continue to love each other and are willing to uh, and feel as if they all understand one another and are able to articulate that sense of group identity through a creative output, you know? And uh, that turns out to be, like I said, very resilient um, because it doesn't depend really on independent, on individuals, right? Uh, um, but at the same time, it's also very fragile. Uh, and there are some elements of it that are quite frankly, I don't know, there's no real other way to describe it besides fucking cult-like, right? I mean, like the level of sacrifice of identity uh, or sacrifice of individualism gets pretty extreme, right? Um, and that's sort of a, I don't know if I'd call it a problem. It's something that, that we're aware of, you know? Um, it's something that I think is uh, not the healthiest thing about this band, right? Like uh, the idea that, you have a member die on tour and you keep going, right? Like that, it's cool that you can do it, but should you do it, right? Um, and, and I think that what you see in the film is you see that there's this kind of battle between, uh, you know, there's these two very egotistical, uh, but also very gifted artists in Hunter Jackson and Dave Brocky who uh, sort of are thrown together, right? But like both of them know the whole time that their power as artists comes from being able to marshal the output and the energy of these other people around them, right? And get them to, uh, uh, to do what they do best uh, and not get in their way, right? Like, so, and I mean, as, you know, and mainly they were, those two guys were getting into each other's way. <laughs> uh, so, um, 
but even that though, like they were able to put all that aside, right? And 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 really focus on the creative output and on the opportunity to do something to, you know, just to communicate. Uh, and they and they did so in a way that was very, very impressive. Um and then the other thing, you know, and you may be talking about like the point in the film where, or one of the things that you're probably talking about is in the film, I talk directly to that. I say, I talk about the time that our guitar player got shot um, while we were on tour. And there was this very sort of, you know, the show must go on attitude that came from, uh, from Brocky. Like it never even occurred to him. Like, uh, how traumatic that situation had been for uh, for myself and for Mike Dirks and for everybody who was in the car that that day um, when it happened. Um, and so what they did was they sent a van to pick us up because we had rented cameras and lights to do a film shoot, and the film shoot happened as scheduled. Um, and I remember being absolutely horrified that that was, that that was happening. Um, mainly because, and it's funny, man, it's really funny because Dirks, Mike Dirks, he does, I don't know that he agrees with me about this. Um, he doesn't talk very much, so it's not, he's not a person that you can really, uh, when he does, he he means what he says and, and, and we're very close. Um, but much of my resentment from that day came out of my concern for him. Right. Um, you know, and I mean, I could tell the story if the people on the podcast don't know what it is, but you know, essentially we're writing, Gore was recording an album. Um, we're up in, uh, Baltimore, Maryland. We decide we're going to come back. Uh, and, uh, so myself, the drummer, uh, Brad Roberts, the guitar player, Mike Dirks, the guitar player, Pete Lee, um, uh, Brocky and our manager, Liz, and the other visual artists were working on the video in Richmond. And we were working on the album in Baltimore. We came back because we were going to film a video uh, the next day. and we pull up to a, we took an exit off of a highway, you know, 295, um, the exit for the, uh, for the aquarium. Uh, so we're thinking, you know, I remember we all had to pee and we're like, oh, wow, the aquarium, you know, it's not going to be Vietnam that you pull into, but that's exactly what it was. I mean, it was like, we took that exit and we found ourselves in ourselves in one of the worst parts of Washington, D.C. And there's like build, you know, right off the exit, everything's boarded up. Uh, there are some people hanging out on the streets. Uh, it's not a safe area. And immediately we were victims of something called a bump and run robbery where the, you know, we're, we're in the lane to go straight. But this car pulls out in front of us and turns. Um, so we have this very low speed collision and we uh, start, we get out of the car because we're going to address the issue with the person that we uh, just ran into. And essentially what happens is that 
that person starts to try and rob us, right? And there were some people who, who were on the street who had come up to the car. They were not part of this, um, but they watched it happen and they watched this disagreement happen. We all get in the car and start riding, these two that walked up, um, and fire into the back of a car, unleash like a semi-automatic pistol into the back of a car full of people that you do not know, right? You know, that's what this person did. And uh, like I said, I mean, I could never figure it out. Like, you know, because like I said, they weren't a part of the robbery and they really weren't. Like, it's not like that guy was waiting there. It was a coincidence. And the people that shot were people who were on the street that watched the confrontation and just sort of involved themselves. We wind up on the highway and the driver, uh, our, our guitar player says, I think I've been shot. Um, the guy who was the engineer for the album feels his chest and he's like, and he pulls his hand back and he, his hand was covered in blood. So uh, there was this intense moment where uh, he starts sort of flailing around and in a panic, he hits the wheel of the driver. The driver runs into the median strip, which flattens two of our tires, right? So we are essentially in the same neighborhood that we were, were when we got shot. Um, but now we only have, we're riding on two wheels. So we pull up to the very next exit, probably maybe seven, 10 blocks away from where it happened. Um, so we are still feeling very much in danger. Um, and we start going around the neighborhood uh, because it becomes clear when we open the back of the car that that uh, Peter Lee, who was the guitar player, that he that he was he was dying. I mean, he was sucking for air. His lungs were collapsing. Um, he'd been shot. Uh, we later found out uh, in the lower back and the bullet exited his chest, like right under his right uh, armpit. Um, so. You know, I mean. But we were terrified. And then, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, maybe like we eventually got an elderly man, like we had knocked on the doors and nobody was responding to us. Like, you know, uh, but we finally knock on the door. This elderly man I saw, he comes to the door and he, and he says, I'll call the police. And then he shuts the door. So he calls the police. Um, about 10 minutes later, this car with like <laughs> four fellows pulls up. They're in plain clothes, all four doors open, and they all exit holding pistols. Um, and so we start running, you know, I mean, because we didn't experience them as police at all. Uh, um, and uh, they were also wearing white, I'll never forget this, white flag jackets, which I'd never seen before. Uh, and the person who had shot into the back of the car was wearing a like a, a white or a yellow windbreaker um, that I remember. So, you know, we thought that it was the same dudes. So we just start running away. Uh, and I was caught from behind because um, I'm sure I wasn't very difficult to, <laughs> to catch. But, but uh, I was trundling away as fast as I could. And uh, 
then we sat there for a long time and some very incredible things happened. I mean, uh, they almost, it sounds like fiction. It's so incredible, but the, uh, the policeman, I am good in crisis situations. I don't know why, but I just am calm. Um, they picked me as the representative, the guy they were going to talk to. So I'm sitting and it's really hot. I mean, it's like the middle of summer and it's just burning hot and humid. And we're sitting in this car. Uh, the policeman brings, uh, you know, the air conditioners on and he's looking at, at all of us and asking me uh, about the things that happened and I'm relating it to him. And then we have this really weirdly intensely personal moment where the policeman tells me that that night they had gone to uh, the site of a double homicide where a woman's heart had been cut out of her body. Uh, the policeman tells me this and his eyes are filled with tears. Like, like I had never, it was a very unusual interaction with a policeman. Right. You know, and you could tell that this guy was in need of talking about this thing that, that he had seen. Um, and, and he was, I'll never forget. It was just such a weird conversation. I mean, he was, he just kept sort of apologizing to me, uh, for this happening. Um, and asking me, uh, like, uh, he said, he, just sort of explaining what he had seen earlier and how uh, really the whole gist of the conversation was, yeah, the world is really awful, <laughs> you know? Um, and he was concerned about the other people uh, not being able to process the events, which almost felt a little bit like him uh, projecting his own difficulty in processing the events. Uh, onto the people that that he was looking at outside of that car, um, and uh, and then they took us to a hospital. Um, and at the hospital, the hospital was full of uh, gunshot victims. Um, and the people, it was a little bit. The emergency room was a little bit like a like a bank, or like a uh, a little bit like a a, a, a sort of um, you know, a name of a, a restaurant that's in a really bad part of town where they have thick bulletproof glass. Uh, and they were telling us that there was a great deal of fear on the part of the staff that worked there because uh, they had had incidents where people would come back when someone survived a shooting with guns to try and finish the job. And uh, and they were very nervous about that happening. And so there was this way that we felt weirdly marked in some way, like, you know, like just our presence was causing danger for other people. Um, it was a very unnerving uh, situation for us. But I remember, you know, they were they were in particular uh, nervous about uh, um Mike Dirtz, who was uh, standing, you know, he was sitting on the, and, and the policeman was like, that guy is, is he, he used the word grayed out. Um, and I didn't know what he meant, but I think he meant that he was in shock. Um, and, 
so, you know, I mean, what I did when we got there was <clears throat> I called the, the girlfriend of our guitar player who had been shot. And, um, I called his mother, um, and told him what was going on. Um, they both, neither one of them believed me when I told them what had happened, which I thought was, you know, I mean, it was very late at night, you know, so it was a weird call for them to get. Eventually they both figured it out. And, um, you know, and then we call down and we tell uh, Dave and, and Liz, who are uh, our manager and our singer, that, you know, what had happened and they're shocked and horrified. Um, but I remember distinctly getting that call, like, you know, an hour or two later, you know, but we're coming up there and we're going to pick you up. And we're going to bring you back to Richmond to shoot this video. And I remember being like, no, you're not like that, that. I can't think of anything. And there again, like, you know, I was thinking mainly of Mike. I was I was concerned for him because he seemed so affected by it. And I was affected by it, but I was processing it differently. Um, I'll never forget that they did show up the next morning um, after Mike and I had been up all night long believing that at any time these guys would come back to that hospital. Um, and uh, they pick us up in this van with no seats in the back. It was an empty work van with like some pieces of foam. Um, and so we're sitting on these pieces of foam and every time we would hit a bump, we would jump out of our skin. You know, I mean, it was an extremely traumatic thing to happen. And uh, it impacted me greatly. And basically, you know, less than four months later, I was out of the band um, because it felt very, just unconscionable to me that, that we would continue on. Um, I felt something similar. Uh, at, you know, I hadn't been in the band for years, but then like we watched Corey, I watched as they were on stage processing the fact that while they were on tour, their guitar player had died and the band continued on. And if you talk to them, it's interesting, you know, because like uh, Bob Gorman and some of the other members have told me, well, yeah, but that was the right thing to do because we were, you know, otherwise we would have been processing this alone, but we were all together and we were riding down the road and, and we were able to, you know, work through this as a band and it really helped us. Um, and that's an interesting perspective. From the outside, I remember thinking to myself, this is another example of the show must go, must go on and we're not, and, and of people not caring for themselves in the way that they should. Um, and, uh, you know, but that's, that was an outside perspective, right? Um, so, uh, you know, there you have it. I mean, like what, what I would consider the downside of being so into something that you uh, uh, are wind up sacrificing your individual <laughs> uh, well-being in some ways for it. Uh, and, and, and not only that, but, you know, I mean, there was the expectation, right. You know, I, I, I don't think of this and think, oh yeah, well that, that happened because Dave Brocky and Liz Fairbairn are bad people. Um, that's not it. That happened because they were a part of something that we were all a part of. And that was the expectation. And, uh, you know, so that's, uh, 
I mean, I don't know. From there, we can we can start, you know, questions, whatever. But uh, that's what happened. That's the incident that that is the, uh, you know, sort of at the the heart of that question for me, right? Of uh, individuality and uh, and finding a, a self identity. And for me, you know, it's it's weird. It's like the agreement, the tacit social agreement that you have, that pact. What I realized later is that it ended for me when that happened. You know what I'm saying? Like I was no longer a part of that. That incident put me on the outside of it. Um, and it was years before I would get back in. I mean, it was 2014, you know? I mean, I was gone from the band for 20 years uh, and uh, doing other stuff and never looked back, never thought twice about, about that. Um, you know, but it didn't take, and, and it was actually what drew me back into that pack was Brocky's death, right? Uh, you know, when, when Dave died, um, knowing what these guys had been through to keep this thing going um, and understanding that just the, how profoundly unfair it felt that they were going to lose all of that. Uh, because of this guy's death, right? Uh, it didn't seem fair um, that they had worked so hard. Um, and more than that, when I was around them, because I basically, I mean, you know, so I, like I found out that Dave died. Literally, I get a phone call. I tell my girlfriend at the time, look, man, Dave Brocky died. I'm going to Richmond. Bye. Um, and, you know, I was teaching at the University of Virginia. I had I was living in Charlottesville. I got in my car. I rode to Richmond. I stayed there that night. I, you know, basically relocated to Richmond uh, to help them process that that night. Um, and, uh, you know, because I knew it was going to really hurt people that I really cared about, uh, you know, that they they were in a crisis situation, you know, I mean, I, I hadn't known Corey very well, you know, he was not in the band, the guitar player who died. He, I wasn't in the band when he was in the band. Uh, uh, and, you know, but I definitely knew Dave and I knew what, what this was, you know, what was going to happen. Uh, the amount of, no, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew that, that it was going to really impact these guys. So that's really, another traumatic event that sort of brought me in. And I'd never even really thought about that until right now, but, um, you know, it's <laughs> one incident got me out another brought me back in. So. And it's, it's interesting. Cause just to, you know, I'm so obviously I'm sorry that it's just, it's a lot, you know, and obviously it happened to you. The event happened relatively quickly, but all this happened over the course of years. And, Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, one thing I'm kind of curious about is at, at the point at which you wanted to leave the band, I think one of the biggest fears that people have about leaving a collective that, that no longer feels as genuine or the connection no longer feels as genuine is well, what do I take away with me? Like, do I leave with nothing after that? And that's what, that's what keeps people in a lot of situations. 
is that they're afraid that, you know, that they've invested so much. And so I, I guess the question is that in terms of your own sense of yourself, when you made that decision, how did that impact your personal sense of yourself, you know, friends, musician, you know, whatever it may be? Well, I mean, I, I talk about being on the outside. Um, that wasn't something that I felt right away. Right. Like, like, and just at that instance, it's just, it's more like it, it sort of settled over me that that had happened in that moment. Um, and uh, really what happened is that I started experiencing difficulty, right? Like uh, uh, my drinking went way up. My, uh, uh, my, the level of anxiety that I had went way up and there is nothing more. I mean, this is a deadly business. I mean, there is no question, you know, there are two people in this band who are dead right now, um, largely because of, the nature of this business. And there are hundreds more who have thousands, you know, who have, who have perished at the hands of being in a rock and roll band. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that pressure that you feel and the rootlessness that you feel when you're traveling everywhere and you don't have your own toilet, you don't have your own bed, you don't have your dogs, you don't have your family. You don't, you know, uh, all that there is are these other people that, that, that you have this shared commitment with. Um, and especially in a band like war where, I mean, you don't, you also don't have like, you know, unfathomable riches and beautiful, like, you know, I mean, it's a working class band, man. Uh, so by and large, you know, I just felt uh, lost after that happened. And I didn't, it, it wasn't even like a choice. Like I, it, it was a, a matter of, uh, you know, personal economics. It's like, it just started costing me more to do it than I was taking away from it. Uh, and so I had to stop. And um, what I felt like I, I took away from it uh, was, you know, I, I'll never remember. Cause like I, I, I'll never forget that I quit and everybody was like, God, you're crazy. And I was like, no, staying would have been crazy. Right. Like, like, uh, uh, so, I mean, I, I don't know if I exactly answered your question, but like, uh, when people make, you know, I just felt like that decision to separate was made for me in a sense. Right. Um, and I've always had that feeling. I mean, I've, I've noticed that about myself, uh, in the past, right. That I, I feel like sometimes like I don't make, I don't really make decisions, right. Like things happen. Uh, I do make decisions, right. But I don't admit to myself that I, that I make, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you, I just kind of adjust to the situation and, and, uh, do what, you know, obviously I, I did decide to leave, but it, it really, it really didn't feel like that. You know what I mean? Um, and as far as regaining a sense of self, just like, you know, I, I just replaced it. You know, it's like I got into another band. Um, I found another relationship, uh, very much like what you do in, in, uh, in, uh, love relationships, right? Like I, I, 
what, what made it easier was having something else to love, having something else to, uh, to throw myself into and, and to, to think about all the time. Um, so, yeah, no, that, that sounds very much like the common denominator that then brought you back in as well. Is that like, well, can I, can I love this? Can I love myself? Can I get mm. immersed in this? And if the answer is yes, it's like, it's great. And, and one of the things that I'll often try to talk to people about is that remember that when you leave a situation to some degree, the situation is a vehicle. I mean, obviously, you know, if it's a relationship, it's a person or it's, it's a group of people. So you, you don't want to think of it in terms of in that kind of a callous way per se, but one of the things that people get afraid of is that, well, I'm going to lose everything because everything that I gained is, is with that person or with those yeah. people. And I think right. that what I try to say to people is that, no, that there's whatever you've done with that person, the experiences you've had, the things that you've learned, those are things that you can take with you. You know what yes. I mean? Like, um, you know, and then, and I think people have a really tough time. They, they do in some situations. It's okay. Like people understand that if you go to high school and then go to college, okay. Like I can take my high school memories with me to some degree in right. some cases, but, yeah. but, but a lot of people with relationships don't feel that way. They, they really feel like it's all gone. And I think what you're talking about is no, the, the best part was preserved in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like I, I, all of the things that I'd learned about being in a band, all of the things that I learned about myself and what I valued, the things that allowed me to make that separation, right. Those were things I got out of that situation. Um, and, uh, you know, so I really went into the next situation knowing like, or the next band that I was in, you know, knowing, okay, well, what's important here are that these people always feel these people being the people that I'm working with, that they always feel like they're in control of this to some degree and that it doesn't feel, you know, that, that we're all in agreement about what we're doing and that, uh, you know, I mean, so there was all kinds of learning that had gone on. I mean, I'd been in that band since I was, had just turned 18 years old. I was in war and, you know, it's kind of where I learned how to be a person. Um, so there was never any question for me about the value of the experience um, uh, or even the question that of whether or not I had the benefit of that experience once it was gone. I could definitely see people losing themselves and losing uh, their, you know, it's weird, man. You know how people replace the experience of feeling pain and loss with a lot of things, right? And they replace it with alcohol. They replace it with new love. Uh, they distract themselves from processing those emotions. And I do think that for me, being in a band was one way of doing that because years after the, when I did lose that band, right? Then it was like, oh, okay. Now you feel that loss, right? Now you feel uh, the question of who are you, right? You know, and then, and, and look what I did. I wound up changing who I was completely, right? Like, you know, now I'm a college professor. Now I'm a professional academic, um, you know, so, uh, but I never stopped feeling the loss of, you know, the dream of being a, a professional musician. And, and um, 
making my money and experiencing music in that way, you know. Uh, but it's just it took longer for me to feel that loss than it maybe should have. Well, and and then in some ways, I, I guess by preserving the well, this is like I, I want to go with it this far, but not that far. Like everything we've done up until now makes sense to me, but this now is a break. It it sounded like the love was preserved, and then and then I mean, think about it. I mean, however many years later, yeah, that's now actually pulling you out. So the 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 affection yeah. for these people is so much that you're mm-hmm. like, I got I got to uproot myself just to be there for them for this loss. I mean, that that's a lot of love. I mean, you know, people make phone calls and 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 yeah. visit for a time, but you're really talking about uh, just I got to go. Yeah. It's rare that you feel like, I mean, it really is the same thing as family. I mean, like you, you push, you know, like you're, you're willing to drop a lot of stuff, you know, jobs, people sacrifice, uh, places they live, they change, you know, because they understand that there are these people that you really care about and that you have to, you know, it's time to take care of them, you know, like, uh, and and but you that's not something you do selflessly i mean you're taking care of yourself when you do that and you know i still feel i don't even know i mean I, it almost has to be some kind of endorphin that i'm feeling like uh uh you know when when bob gorman when i can tell that he takes pleasure out of you know i knew you when you were 15 years old you know uh, when I can tell that he feels that, when I can tell that Mike Dirks feels that, I feel that back. I enjoy uh, being around these people. These are people that I would probably be around anyway if I were given the opportunity. Like, you know, uh, I, I enjoy the chance to, you know, ride around with my friends. I mean, that I've known for a really long time. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, in a way, it was getting that back, right? Uh, um, I mean, among other things, like there were some important elements of the story that that remain to be told. I mean, like you know, I I got the call. You know, I I went on and I had this career as as an academic. Um, I remember some conversations that I had with Dave. There were you know, it was clear that there was a lot of sort of bad feelings that needed to be worked through. And it sucks because we didn't ever, you know, it's like, you that's the other thing that you do is that you take granted, you take people for granted, right? Like, and, and then later you regret it. And that's certainly what I did. It's like, you know, well, one day I'll mend that bridge and then the bridge is gone, you know, and it's, uh, uh, there isn't any real way to, to address it. Um, you know, and you start looking back over your life and your experiences for indications of, uh, you know, I, I had to come to the conclusion, okay, this man loved me and I loved him. Uh, but that's a messy thing, right? It's not, it's not simple. Um, and, uh, and people aren't, aren't simple. And, 
And it's not all, you know, love isn't all about feeling good all the time. It's about struggle and, and commitment and, and caring and hurt. And, um, you know, so, I mean, I had to process all of those things, um, kind of after the fact, uh, and one thing that really helped was, I mean, I was walking through a, walking through a supermarket and I get the phone call from, uh, and this is after I had, you know, this probably a couple of weeks after Dave had died and, I get the call where they're like, well, we want to try to do a show and you can sing because you've sang before and this makes sense. And there are songs that we can do. And I remember thinking to myself, well, we're just going to do the beefcake songs. And then what else? I don't know. Some fucking covers. Like I didn't think of myself, you know, I thought, okay, well, I could do a couple of these songs. But then I looked at the set list that they had come up with and I'm like, oh, because I, I, it didn't even strike me. Oh, you, you mean you want me to sing his songs from when I wasn't in the band, right? Like that was a, a surprise to me. Um, and so it became a kind of, uh, what would you call it? Uh, um, I'm trying to, there's a Jewish word for it and it's escaping me right now, but it's like a, I don't. I want to. Say, I don't think it's mitzvah, but it's like a a, a a a a service that you do for someone, like a process of, of a, a dedication. You know, like you you uh, um, a mission in a, in a way, right? Uh, and you come out on the other side of this uh, um, feeling better about about you about everything, and and learning Dave's words listening to the music, listening to how he, uh, I think what I'm trying to say is that I don't want it to seem like an event. It's a process, right? It's like, uh, so I didn't just get pulled back in and then feel immediately like all this love that was lost. And, and this is the new thing that I have to do. It's like, I had to get there and learning those words realizing what he was trying to do, um, learning his vocal approach, um, really trying to figure out, you know, the quality and, and, and how I could then reflect that with my own abilities to perform. That felt like a service that I was doing for myself and for him. And, uh, and I knew because I'd been in recovery that service is the key and that I had to keep it about something that was done for other people and that, and, and, and when you're in recovery, you become aware that like, you're talking about survival, right? This is danger, right? If it starts becoming about self, it's danger, right? Then you're out there with your ass in the wind and you can die just like Corey and just like Dave. So, uh, there was a way that it felt like service and I remember distinctly, and I'm almost getting emotional thinking about this now, but I remember that as part of that process, it wasn't only Dave, right? When I was listening to learn his words, I was also listening to the music. And I was realizing that Mike Dirks and Brad Roberts had never stopped trying to do the things that we had all been trying to do with music and art 
all those years ago. You know, they in, in those intervening decades, they were still dedicated to making those types of sounds. I could recognize it. I could hear it in what they were doing. And so, like, when I heard it, it moved me, like, intensely. I mean, I remember listening to, uh, uh, to the songs and being like, man, I can hear our ideas coming to fruition years down the line. And these are those same people. These are the people. And that felt like love. You know what I mean? And uh, so all of that went into this kind of moment of healing and this moment of war coming back together. Uh, and, you know, so that, that, that part was worth mentioning too, I think. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because it's, it's like the intensity of what, you know, again, got too much, you know, back during, during the traumatic event, it almost like, well, that, that part kept going to some extent and it was there for mm -hmm. you, you yeah. know, and you were, and yeah. you were there for it, quite frankly. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when exactly. And in, in a, in a way it almost is, even though I'm sure it was, it was difficult and, and bumpy. It's sort of, it, it's sort of in some ways a good example of how to balance individual versus collective identity, because if everybody is there for the, the reasons that are best for them, they can connect into the best parts. I mean, what, what it sounds mm -hmm. like Dave Brocky was kind of saying is like, look, in order to get to that really good place, we got to work through some things. And, and I don't know, it's on, on some kind of like, you know, strange kind of metaphysical level, almost new. Cause you're talking about how, how like, wait, why am I playing? It's almost like somebody knew that that's what needed to be done in order for you to be reconnected to the band. It is. Cause that, it as is. you're telling the story, yeah. it, it does sound kind of striking. It's sort of like, well, why? But in the end that turned out to be exactly what you needed. Yes, exactly. I mean, exactly. Like that, it's weird. It's, it's <laughs> a weird experience to go through. Um, but it feels like a really natural and it's weird, you know, because now it's like, we're putting out records and people are saying what they say, you know, it's like half the people that love Guar really like it, but it has to be different. So they look at it and they're like, oh, I don't know if I like this or not. And it's like, uh, I don't think it would have worked otherwise. So, uh, you know, not because of who I am, not like there's nobody else who can step in and do this. It's just that I don't know that we would have wanted to do it. You know what I mean? Like, and, and people don't realize how important that is, right? Like, I mean, the minute that people stop wanting to do it, this is going to suck. And uh, that hasn't happened. Well, and, and I think that it's also a powerful experience for an audience because I think that there, there are certain bands where you just have to look at the devotion of the audience, you know what I mean? And sort of be like, what's like, what's going on here, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that, and you would know better than I, that Guar has that kind of devotion from its fans. And I am wondering as you're talking, even this thing, like, well, I like this album. I don't like this album. I, I'm wondering if there's something about the energy of the band that says, Hey, like, if you like it, great connect in. If you don't like it, you can, you can check out. 
if you're at mm-hmm. a, you're having a string where you want to come to every Guar show and get sprayed in the front row, it's like that's great. If you want to go away for <laughs> ten years and then you want to come back and bring your kids, it's like and and <laughs> there I, I I do wonder whether just the the enduring nature of it is in part from what what we're talking about is like what happened with you personally, what happens within the band. There is a, a kind of similar feel. Like there's the sense, like, hey, if it's here, if you want, it's here if you need. And you know, Ooh. you might have to. It might be bumpy on the exit and the reentry, but it's there. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and how many and, and how many things are like that in the world? You know, there's there's not a lot. There really isn't a lot in the world that I mean. Once again, war is utterly unique. <laughs> but I mean. It's important, though, to draw out the lessons that can be learned from it, like which is what you do. And one reason I think that what you do is is worth doing, without a doubt, is uh, you know how can you sort of take these lessons from art and from culture and, and music and and use them to teach or to to understand self. And um, I mean, yeah, the, the, it's war is unique. Uh, and and I'm glad that it can be there uh, for people, you know. And it's weird because it's such a controversial way of expressing yourself, but it, it really is kind of universal, man. I mean, people keep worrying, you know, like, well, look at how things have changed. You know, Guar can't really do or say the same things that they used to because the world, people are more sensitive in the world. And, you know, you might offend somebody. And it's really, I mean, people who understand this band understand that that's not what it's about. You know, it's not, uh, it's about, uh, you know, I mean, we have a unique mode of expression, Um, but really, you know, it's about catharsis. It's about uh, transgression. It's about, you know, there's a, I am so proud of this band when I see, you know, because you're not talking about people, and there is an element in, in popular culture right now where of sort of finger wagging. And it's like, you should already know this stuff. Well, people don't already know it. They learn it. You're not, you know, just like you learn racism, just like you learn, uh, you know, sexism. These aren't things that are inborn in you. You learn it from behavior and then you have to fucking unlearn it, you know? And like, uh, you know, I think that Boar you know, you can, you can, even though the band is really sort of ham handed in some of the, the things that they say, like, you know, you, what you watch is a, a group of people learning, man, like, and, uh, and then, you know, spitting that out, you know, and it, it really is a very, uh, I feel very privileged to be a part of that, you know, like, uh, and, 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 and to watch the fans and the lessons that Dave Brocky taught people to be able to teach those still, you know, um, and to do it in like, you know, whatever sort of sloppy way that, that, that we do it, but still like, man, we're helping people understand the world and we're helping, uh, you know, just by sort of watching us process it, you know? Um, but it thrills. I feel so proud of the fact that when we look in the crowd, there are, uh, Guar has become in this time of like 
increased, there, there definitely is, has been a social movement towards people understanding sort of transgender people, right? Um, and, and, and making room for them in a way that was not done before, right? And it has been a real thrill for me that for years, ever since I joined back, there's a lot of transgender people at bar shows. There's a lot of people who identify with what we're doing um, who feel like, you know, and, and that is such a compliment to me. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm so proud of that. I'm proud that that's, that that's something that happens. Well, I, I think um, that there's a lot that with Guar about identity and sort of, I think, confronting the the contrast between the identity that uh, people think you quote unquote should have versus the things that you, you feel is more authentic to you. I think that Guar, from what I can understand, just on a very physical level was, you know, sort of challenging gender norms, you know, yes. and, and challenging physical gender norms, conceptual gender yes. norms. And yes. I, I, you know, obviously I don't, I don't think either of us have like, you know, technical statistical data on how many members of the transgender community are Guar fans. But when you said that, and, you know, as, as someone who, who, you know, helps a lot of people transition, you know, it's, it, it's, it's something that, um, you know, you don't know where that place is going to be, where you feel like you're around people who get it just a little bit better, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and when you are, when you are someone who is in the closet for sexuality or because of, you know, your gender identity or something like that, if there's some place that, that feels like, Hey, these are people who are at least taking this on. These are mm-hmm. people who are at least considering this. Maybe this is a place right. that's more open-minded. And, and certainly, I think that one of the things that, that we could say is that because of the uh, extreme nature and over-the-top nature of, of not only the show, but also the, the whole uh, lore behind it, you know, it's <laughs> sort of like, well, I think we could probably say that, that these are potentially at least open-minded people. Yeah, you know, yeah. and the and the community and the community feel and all that kind of stuff. So it wouldn't surprise me if what you're saying is true, because there's just a lot. And this is and this goes back for however many years, you know, that that yeah. you guys were taking this stuff on. And now, like you said, it's much more talked about in society. But back then, you know, people, I, I, you know, where where were people going to going to think about some of these issues? I mean, Exactly. I mean, in 1987, in night, well, shit, 1985, man. You know, San Francisco is in the middle of the dying period, right? Like, uh, you know, Dave's brother was dying of AIDS, and uh, and Dave's brother is one of the very in, a very important figure in war that people don't really know or think about, but. Uh, uh, he wasn't in the band, but he was. But he stood over the band, you know, just as this. It's like here's this guy we all admire. Where here's that guy's hero, and and uh, he's sick. It's hard to deal with, but um, we did it. I mean, you know, we went out there and did. <laughs> AIDS beer, you know, like when they couldn't get funding to think about this stuff, you know, they couldn't get, um, they were just letting it happen. 
that's what it felt like to us, you know. Um, so I'm proud that, you know, when people, if people are able to recognize themselves or to find some space to be themselves through Guar, that that's very satisfying. I think that's got to be the final word right there. <laughs> All right. Dr. Bishop, always, always great to talk with you. Thank you. I look forward to the next time we talk. Me too. So there you have it. Dr. Michael Bishop, otherwise known as the Berserker Blothar of Guar, talking about how he struggled with issues of collective versus personal identity in the context of the band. And I think we can really learn from Michael's example. There is so much that we can get from community, that feeling of connection, working together for a greater cause, and gaining the support of the community as we build our own purpose-driven life. But we have to always be careful that in our pursuit of community, our connection with others doesn't cause us to disconnect from ourselves. And if we find that we can't really be as kind or loving towards ourselves and still be part of a particular community, that sometimes it's better to leave that community and be on our own as we pursue a purpose-driven life. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for editing and producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear on the podcast, please write a review and share our podcast. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. Just as a heads up, this season we'll be sharing our podcast monthly. So look for next month's podcast in early August with Adam Darsky of Behemoth. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time. <laughs>